We are in Revelation chapter 4. We looked last time we were together at the first two verses. I'm going to read it to you again. That Revelation chapter 4, John uh, writes, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. And immediately I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. So, Father, uh, as we continue in this chapter, my prayer is that it would excite us because I look so forward to the time when we will all be together and before the throne. And Lord, I thank you that we have this hope, this assurance of salvation, that Jesus is the door. And as we come in faith, that we can have that um, just uh, truth and assurance in our hearts that we will be standing here, even as we will see the church standing here in chapter 5 before the throne. So, Lord, I pray our hearts are stirred, that we would help us have an eternal perspective. And, Lord, to know that we are citizens of heaven, as even as Paul would write to the church at Philippi. And we have a home that will be forever. So, Lord, um, again, may our hearts be touched tonight. May this really resonate with us. This is real. This is our destiny. And, and may we be excited because of it, because... This world will come to an end. Our lives will come to an end on this side of eternity. And as James writes, our lives are but a vapor. But what is ahead for us is eternal. So Lord, uh, help us be attentive right now as we look at the rest of this chapter. In Jesus' name, amen. So last time we looked at only the first two verses of chapter 4. And, and keep in mind that Revelation, the outline is given to us in chapter 1, verse 19. And as John was there, uh, uh, exiled to the island of Patmos, he, uh, of course, as you read in chapter 1, he uh, was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard a, behind me a loud voice as a trumpet saying that I am the Alpha, the Omega, the first and the last, and we know that to be Jesus. And it's interesting that here that John, as he's caught up in this scene in heaven, that the first voice which I heard like a trumpet speaking with me saying, come up here. So in verse 1, this is obviously Jesus. But in that outline of chapter 1, verse 19, which is very important for us to understand, that John, what you're to do is write these things down, which are, and, and of course, um, which you have seen, that is. And that is John, as he turned, he saw the Lord standing in the midst of seven golden lampstands. And of course, those represented the seven churches. And we know that John there gives that description of the glorified Lord in chapter 1. So write the things which you have seen. That's chapter 1. And then, John, you are to write the things which are, that's chapters 2 and 3, the seven letters to the seven churches. And so the church age. And then thirdly, write the things that will take place after this. It's the Greek word metatata. And chapter 4 now starts with metatata. I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. And notice that it's not a gate, it's a door. We hear the jokes about the pearly gates and Peter there with the, you know, at a desk and checking everybody. It isn't going to be that way at all. Here John is caught up. He hears the voice of the Lord come up here and, and a door in heaven. And of course Jesus in John's gospel would say that I am the door. He is the door to heaven. He is the way to heaven. And John here, hearing the voice of the Lord come up here, we talked a lot about the rapture of the church. Now, uh, immediately as he was in the spirit and a throne set in heaven and one who sat on the throne. And we talked about the rapture of the church because chapter 4, even though scholars and Bible teachers will say that this is not a reference to the, the the rapture of the church, but it definitely gives us a picture of the rapture of the church. And, and I believe that we will be raptured, that is, the Lord's going to come for us, for the church, before chapter 6 begins. Because in chapter 6 through 18, you have that period called the tribulation period. And we're going to see that the scene changes from chapters 4 and 5, the heavenly scene, uh, as we're going to look at the one on the throne tonight. 
We're going to see that which proceeds from the throne, that which is around the throne. And then when we get to chapter 5, we're going to see those who are in front of the throne and singing that new song. And we're going to see when we get there to chapter 5 that that's the church. I, I believe that's going to be us in this heavenly scene. And then chapter 6 through 18, that seven-year period called the tribulation period, where we see the sealed judgments that are going to be opened up, the trumpet judgments, the bold judgments, God's pouring out his wrath on a Christ-rejected world, and there's a lot going on in the tribulation period, and we're given in detail those events in chapters 6 through 18. Chapter 19 is the second coming of Jesus Christ, where we come back with him, and then we see the millennium reign with the great white throne judgment, the new heaven and the new earth. So everything from chapter 4 to the end of the book, chapter 22, is all yet future. So John, all of a sudden, as he's taken up, he hears a voice come up here. I can't wait till we hear that voice come up here. Now, again, to remind you, and I would, uh, if you're new to Bible prophecy, uh, sometimes people are confused about the coming of the Lord. And we that have been here at Calvary Chapel, you know there's two distinct events. There is the rapture of the church where the Lord comes for his church, that Paul speaks about in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Thus we will always be with the Lord. So there's going to be a generation of Christians that the Lord's going to come and call us up. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, that it will happen in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. Not the blink of an eye, the twinkle of an eye. Now, a twinkle of an eye is caused by reflection off your eye. So at the speed of light, one day, at, at, you know, the Lord's going to descend, and, and he's going to call us home, the church, and we're going to go home to be with him. And we're going to meet the Lord in the air. So that's different than the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus, when he talked about his return, he said, that I come at a time when you're least expected. So you be the wise servant that's looking and watching. And, and we're to occupy till he comes, but I come when you're least expected. So we see the doctrine of imminent return, and that's why I believe one of the reasons that the rapture of the church can happen at any time. Uh, there's no prophecies that need to be fulfilled for the rapture of the church to happen. Now, the second coming of Jesus Christ, we know, happens in chapter 19. So the rapture of the church is when he comes for his church. The second coming of Jesus Christ is when he comes with this church. And in that, we're going to see that Jesus, when he comes back literally, physically, touches down on the Mount of Olives, that we are going to be coming back with him. Jude says that little epistle that he, behold, he comes with ten thousands of his saints. We know that uh, it is in chapter 19, it tells us that those, the army of the Lord arrayed in white robes, that's you and me, we're going to be coming with him riding on white horses. So two distinct events when we talk about the return of the Lord. And if you want to, to listen to that teaching, I talk about, again, reasons why I believe that the rapture is going to happen before this seven-year period where God is pouring out his wrath in a Christ-rejected world. And we know that John would say that when we see him, we shall be like him. And he who has this hope purifies himself. So I want to remind you that each and every day as we are looking for the Lord's return, we don't know the day or the hour. No one knows the day or the hour. But we are to be watching and waiting. And as we do, as we keep our eyes on the things above, not on the things of this world, as Paul would write to the church at Colossae, then there's a purifying effect that happens in our lives. So I want to encourage you, keep your eyes on the Lord. Let's keep looking for him. Uh, let's keep watching. Let's occupy till he comes. And that's what we are to do. So anyway, here we see that this, immediately I was in the spirit and behold a throne set in heaven and one who sat on the throne. And let's continue now in verse three. And he who sat there was like a jasper and sardis stone in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. So as, as we read uh, verse 3 here, 
We know that uh, one thing that catches John's attention is the one sitting on the throne. And John describes him as one like a jasper in a sardis stone. Uh, John is describing his glory here. Now we identify the one on the throne is God the Father. Uh, Revelation chapter 5 verse 7 uh, kind of confirms that because when we get to chapter 5, we're going to see that Jesus uh, is going to be the one that takes this scroll uh, out of the hand of him who sat on the throne. So Jesus, when uh, that seven-sealed scroll that we'll talk about in chapter 5 is in the hands of, of the Father, and he is going to, I'm hearing music or something that somebody's playing. Um, so if you can find out what that is. Um, that would be great. Thank you. So, but anyway, he took the scroll out of the hand of um, the one who sits on the throne, which is God the Father. Also, when you get to chapter 7, verse 10, it identifies the Father on the throne and, and then mentions the Lamb as well. So here is the Father, and John says again that he uh, uh, is like a jasper and sardis stone. He didn't say that he was a jasper and sardis stone, but he's like these precious stones. And it's an analogy, and that's all it is here. He's like a jasper stone. Now, in Revelation chapter 21, verse 18, we know that the jasper stone, it tells us that it is clear like crystal. So many believe that this very well could be a diamond. Uh, the Sardis stone was a blood red stone, probably rubies. And also kind of a note of interest as, as we put the scriptures together, and that's one of the neat things about going through the book of Revelation. There are many, many references to the Old Testament to help us understand the book of Revelation. And if you were one that uh, were a Jewish believer, or if you're familiar with the Old Testament, reading the description of the Jasper and Sardis stone, here, you would immediately think back to Exodus chapter 28 or Exodus chapter 39, speaking of the high priest's breastplate. Now, the, the breastplate the high priest wore had 12 stones, and each of those stones were different stones, and we know that uh, those 12 stones represented the 12 tribes of Israel. And it symbolized that the high priest was to carry the people on his heart. So there were those 12 stones there, and we know that the first stone was the Sardis stone, which represents Jacob's firstborn, Reuben. And then the last stone was, uh, that was on the plate was the Jasper stone, which represents the last son of Jacob, Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin. And, and, and Jesus, of course, as we already read in chapter 1, what does he declare? He declares that I am the first and the last. Reuben, his name means behold a son. Benjamin, the son of my right hand, that's what his name means. So I believe that John is also making a reference to Jesus, the son of God seated at the right hand of the father. Also the Sardis stone, the, the Jasper stone. John writes in his epistle in 1 John that God is light and, and God is love. The diamond, probably the most precious and beautiful of all stones, uh, the one that, that people really desire, but diamonds give off light, don't they? The diamond speaks of beauty and perfection. It represents holiness. And the Sardis stone, the red ruby, speaks of God's love. Because what did we read in Romans chapter 5? You remember that God proved his love for us, that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus went to the cross and shed his blood for us. Without that, we could not look forward to this heavenly scene. The jasper and sardis stones, I believe, do speak of Jesus. And as we continue, as we read here in verse 3, and there was a rainbow and around the throne an appearance like an emerald. So where did we first see a rainbow? Again, the Old Testament back in the book of Genesis, uh, after the flood, after God flooded the world, judged the world um, with the flood, and then the rainbow came out as a sign of God's promise not to flood the whole earth again. So the rainbow was a symbol of God's promise. The rainbow also could be reminding us that God keeps his promises and keeps his word. Certainly he does. It also speaks of his grace. 
And the Bible speaks of, uh, in the book of Hebrews, let us therefore come boldly into the throne of grace that we may obtain help in time of need. Isn't that a wonderful promise for you and for me? Because we are believers in Jesus Christ, and he is the way to the Father. We have relationship with the Father that we can come boldly to the throne of grace in time of need to receive mercy, to receive help is what Hebrews chapter 4 declares to you and to me. And I hope that you always remember that. I need to remember that. Lord, I need help. I need strength. Lord, I need wisdom. Lord, I, I need you. And we can come to the throne of grace, approach the Lord in that way because of his incredible grace and also know that he keeps his promises. We can stand on his promises and we can rest in his word knowing that, that he loves us and his word is true for us. And, and, and I hope that you realize that, and I need to realize, that not a word that he gives to us will fail us. And then as we continue in verse 4, and around the throne there were 24 thrones, and on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. So John's attention now is first to the one who's on the throne, now it begins to describe to us things around the throne. And he notices here 24 lesser thrones with 24 elders with crowns of gold. Now there's a, a, a lot of debate about and speculation. Who are these 24 elders? So I'm going to give some suggestions to you. One is that it could be, some have suggested, that it's the 12 patriarchs of the Old Testament and then the 12 apostles of the New Testament. Um, you recall that last week when Jesus was teaching uh, about greatness uh, to the disciples in that upper room as we were going over that during Passion Week, Holy Week. And the disciples came into that upper room that last night that they had dinner with Jesus before he went to the cross and he instituted the Lord's Supper and, and uh, he washed their feet. But you recall that Luke's Gospel tells us that they're arguing who's going to be the greatest. And it tells us that they were still expecting for Jesus to usher in the kingdom of God. They were expecting that in his triumphal entry all week long, clear up to that night who's going to be the greatest, who's going to be on your left, who's going to be on your right. And Jesus taught them about greatness. And he washed their feet. He said, what I have done for you, you're to do for one another. And by the way, uh, that's what ministry is all about. It's about washing feet. It's about serving others. And Jesus said that that's the way it is to be with us. If you want to be great in the kingdom, then be the servant of all. We're to humble ourselves as a child. We're to be ones that uh, we are the ones that serve, not the one that sits at the table and wants to be served all the time. That's the way of the world. And, you know, the Gentiles, Jesus said, want a Lord over. But you and I, listen, we have opportunity every single day to serve somebody. And I hope that we do that. I hope that, that husbands serve your wives, that we would serve others around us, that we would look for those opportunities to really just serve others and have that servant's heart. And it's not always easy. And it's not always, you know, um, something that's convenient. But to look for those opportunities to serve others, that's how we become great in the kingdom of God. So here you recall in that text in Luke's gospel, chapter 22, that Jesus said, listen, the time's going to come where you guys, you 12 guys, uh, and of course Judas would go away, but you guys are going to sit on the throne." In, in heaven. You're going to sit on thrones. And he went on to say, judging the, the 12 tribes of Israel. So some suggest that perhaps could it be the 12 tribes of Israel? Could it be the 12 apostles? Uh, another suggestion is um, that, you know, that this is 24 elders or representative of the church. You know, it's interesting that as we look at this, and sometimes we can't be super dogmatic. In 1 Chronicles chapter 24, when David was getting ready for the temple, uh, David was making the plans, as the Lord was showing him, David would not build the temple. Remember, he wanted to. The Lord said, David, you're not going to build the temple, that your hands are bloodied, your son Solomon's going to build the temple. But David did what he could do. 
And he gathered as he was conquering, you know, the enemies around him. He gathered the spoils, the gold, the silver. He made, you know, some treaties with, uh, uh, you know, up in Tyre and, and Sidon, uh, king, uh, the king up there, uh, to bring lumber down for the cedar trees to come. He drew up the plans, and he got the Levites. He got uh, the priests and, and, and all those who are going to be ministering at the temple all in order. Because by the time that David comes along, there was a lot of priests. There were hundreds of priests, uh, thousands of priests. There were a lot of Levites, magicians, and all of them. They couldn't all fit in the temple. So what David did is he divided the priest up, for example, into 24 groups. And then he chooses one representative from each group that would minister in the temple. But those 24 representatives, priests, represented all the priesthood, all of the priests. Uh, David did it with the Levites. He did it with the sons of Asaph. And it represented whoever was there at the temple ministering at that time, represented all of them. So some look at this and say this represents all believers throughout history, Old Testament and New Testament. Some say that the 24 elder, elders are just representative of the church that is standing before the throne, speaking of the body of Christ, uh, standing, worshiping, and praising God. Uh, it is interesting when you read Ezekiel chapter 1, you can write this down in your notes, in Isaiah chapter 6, in those visions of heaven, the 24 elders are not mentioned in those visions. So some believe that perhaps the 24 elders represent the church. Some have suggested these are angels. I do not believe that they are angels. It's because, one, they're clothed in white robes, which speaks of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That is given to believers. Now, we do see angels clothed in white robes or garments. We see that in Mark chapter 16, verse 5. You see it in John chapter 20, verse 12. You see it in Acts chapter 1, verse 10. But you never see angels crowned. You see, these 24 elders are crowned. And, and believers, we are told in 1 Corinthians chapter 9... We are told to run the race, you know, run your race to win the prize, to win the crown. So we're told to run in such a way that we are to, uh, to you know, win the prize because uh, there's a crown that awaits us that's imperishable that Paul writes about. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8, some of the last words of Paul the Apostle, that he says that now there's a crown of righteousness that is laid up for me. Peter writes about for shepherds, you know, that uh, shepherd a flock of God, that there's a crown that awaits them. So there are crowns that are waiting for you and for me. And this word in the Greek here is stephanos. It's a crown of victory. It's not royalty. It's a crown of victory. And we have victory because of Jesus Christ. And so these 24 elders, it could be the church. It could be representative of, of all believers. Um, Old Testament, New Testament. I tend to lead towards perhaps this is the 24 elders representative of the church. We have victory in Jesus Christ. Uh, but continuing on, we read in verse 5, And from the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices, and seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. So, John here continues to give us sights and sounds around the throne. First, the one who's on the throne, and then around the throne, and now proceeding from the throne. And here he sees something interesting, lightnings and thunderings and voices. And again, we can think about that, and when you consider it, what do you think about? You think about the Old Testament, right? When the children of Israel... Uh, would come out of Egypt. They came to the mountain of God. And there in the book of Exodus, you read about how it was, um, you know, Moses that was told that get your people ready because I'm going to show myself uh, to the people. And all of a sudden, that mountain, it shook and there was it smoke and there was lightnings and thunderings and, and it was on fire and the people trembled as you read Exodus chapter 19. And they said, Moses, this is too much for us. And you go up on the mountain and we'll do what you tell us to do, which they didn't do because it was 40 days after that. They're dancing around a golden calf. 
But it was an awesome sight. And I think that the lightnings and the thunders that, that they you know, saw there in the book of Exodus, um, that they were divine lightning and thunderings. It was just awesome. Now, I don't know about you, but we're entering into that time of year. And I think for most of us, we love to watch lightning, you know, don't we? You've ever sat outside and watch a lightning storm or, you know, a storm approaching? To, to me, it fascinates me. I can sit there and watch a lightning storm off in the distance for hours, especially at night. But what a sight that must have been on Mount Sinai. You know, the lightnings and the thunderings and the mountain was on fire. The mountain shook and, and it was an incredible sight. And we see that thunders and lightnings and, and all of this is repeated when we go through the book of Revelation. We're going to see it again in chapter 8. We'll see it in chapter 11 and I believe chapter 16. And it is associated with judgment. So scholars have suggested that what John is seeing is perhaps God's judgment that's about ready to come down on a Christ-rejected world. Uh, we read here, as uh, we read in verse 5 here, that the seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. We know that this is a reference to the Holy Spirit, chapter 1, the seven spirits of God. There's only one Holy Spirit. There's not seven Holy Spirits but only one Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, and with uh, its sevenfold ministry that we made reference to in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, the seven attributes of the Holy Spirit. And then we see here that the seven lamps uh, here that is mentioned uh, in verse 5, uh, the seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. But the seven lamps is representing again the Holy Spirit. Uh, you might recall that when Jesus came to the river, to be baptized, that John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, and, and he's going to come and baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Uh, Matthew chapter 3, verse 16. You recall in the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came upon the believers in that upper room that were praying, that it, there was tongues of fire that are mentioned there um, that was taking place. So it, it's speaking of the Holy Spirit, a reference to the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 6, before the throne, there was a sea of glass like crystal. And in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature like a calf. The third living creature had the face of a man. And the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures each had six wings, were full of eyes, and around within. So as we go through the book of Revelation, we're going to see a lot of angels, a lot, a lot of angelic creatures. And these guys are interesting as, as we read about them. The description that is given. Now, who are these four living creatures? We got a reference to Ezekiel chapter 1. In Ezekiel chapter 1, when the prophet looks to the north, he sees what appears to be, again, approaching thunderstorm. Uh, uh, great dark clouds and flashing lightning uh, as, as we see here lightnings that are proceeding from the throne of God and, and we know that uh, in chapter 1 there's the vision that Ezekiel tells of four living creatures identified in chapter 10 of Ezekiel as cherubim so you can do the cross reference there and, and chapter 28 of Ezekiel tells us that they have a special access to the throne of God. And that makes sense. Remember that when Moses was given the instructions to build a tabernacle that came from the Lord, the, the pattern of the heavenly tabernacle, and there in the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant, and then on top of the Ark of the Covenant was the mercy seat, and the mercy seat was a lid that was made, what, of two cherubim, two two uh, angelic creatures, and the Lord said, I'll, I'll meet you between the cherubim. So the cherubim seemed to represent the throne, you know, of God, the, the chariot of God. We know that the place where God is enthroned uh, is called the chariot, according to uh, 1 Chronicles chapter 28, verse 18. 
So you can make all these as you're taking notes here, perhaps, and, and trying to put this all together. There in Ezekiel chapter 1, you have those that are identified, according to Ezekiel chapter 10, as cherubim. Uh, they're, they're around the, the guardians of the throne of God uh, we see in Scripture. Uh, but the cherubim that we see in chapter 1 of Ezekiel, they had four wings. In that description, you read they had cloven feet. And each of them had, had uh, they had four faces. Each had the face of a man, the face of a lion, the face of an ox, and the face of an eagle. So just kind of stay with me here. So these cherubim, each one had those four faces. Here we see that these four living creatures have six wings. And they each had a different face. Same, same faces, a man, a lion, an ox, and an eagle. But it's a little bit different. It's interesting, in Isaiah chapter 6, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, sitting on the throne. And the train of his robe filled the temple, and above it stood seraphims. So another class of angelic beings there around the throne of God. Each one had six wings. And we're told that two, you know, uh, wings, he, uh, the, the angelic seraphim would cover his feet with two, his, uh, he would fly around, and the other two, he covered his face. And they cried out to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. What's my point in all this? Are these seraphim or are they cherubim? Either way, I'm happy, okay? But we see the description here. It could be that they're seraphim. It could be the cherubim, another class of cherubim. But they have each a, a face of, you know, of a, a man, a, a lion, an ox, an eagle. The description in Ezekiel chapter 1, each of those cherubim had four faces, each of them. It's all pretty similar. The seraphim has six wings. It's going to be interesting when we get to heaven to see the different angelic beings that God created. It's going to be absolutely awesome, isn't it? And going through the book of Revelation, we see, you know, these angels that are described to us. But these are interesting here. So you have seraphim, you have cherubim. Here in, in chapter 4 of the book of Revelation, we see that these angelic creatures flying around the throne of God, they're full of eyes as well, in the front and in the back. And we also know, as we read the description of these angelic four living creatures, cherubim, um, we, we think, man, uh, how strange, you know, full of eyes. One's got the face of a, a man. One's got the face, as we read this, of a lion. The second, a calf. The third, a face like a man. And the fourth, a living creature like a flying eagle. But it's interesting. Uh, as we read in verse 8, they have six wings full of eyes, and they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was, who is, who is to come. I think that these four living creatures, the cherubim, these ones here with these four faces, that they speak of Jesus. No doubt in my mind. You say, what do you mean by that, Pastor Jeff? When you go to the book of Numbers, when the children of Israel... When they left Egypt, we know from Exodus chapter 12, verse 18, that they left in orderly ranks. In other words, they were organized. Twelve tribes, they left in orderly ranks. Have any of you ever seen, I, I heard they were going to put the movie back on, but I don't know if they did, The Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston. I think most of us have seen that long movie. And when they leave Egypt, it's kind of like this mass of people, you know, going out into the wilderness. It wasn't that way at all. And when they camped, it wasn't one big camp out. It wasn't everybody just, you know, camp wherever you want. They would leave in orderly ranks. They would camp in orderly ranks according to Numbers chapter 2. So if you want some good time, bedtime reading, read chapter 2 tonight. And you'll see that God has order in what he does. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, listen, comes along. And remember that Paul writes, do everything decently and in order. You see, that's why we try to do things in order and decently here at Calvary Chapel. 
I don't just start the service, well, you know, it's quarter after seven, we can start now. We try to do things where there's order, there's decency. We want to be open to the leading of the Holy Spirit, of course we do. But there is God that, that tells us to do things orderly, and we see it throughout the scriptures. So that leads me to Numbers chapter 2. When they would camp, there in the middle of the camp, there was the tabernacle. And that's where the Levites were, the priestly tribe. That's where Moses and Aaron was, and that's where they would stay. But on the east side of the uh, tabernacle, there was three tribes that would camp there. There was Judah, Issachar, and Zebulon. And Judah was the standard uh, tribe. They, they carried that flag. In other words, it's kind of like vacation Bible school. You know, we divide up the kids into three groups. And they each, you know, when they line up, they go from crafts to teaching to games to whatever. You know, they all have to follow, and they follow the leader that, you know, sometimes has a, a standard, a flag, and they know they're supposed to be there, right? And it was the same way here. So Judah was the standard flag. So if you were of Judah and you were of Issachar and Zebulon, oh, I need to be over there. And that's where you camped. That's where you would stay. On the south side was Reuben, Simeon, and Gad. Reuben was the standard flag. So Reuben had their flag up there. You got behind them. The west side, Ephraim, Manasseh, Benjamin. Ephraim was the standard tribe. And then the north side was Dan, Ashtar, and Naphtali. Dan was the standard tribe. You say, so what? What about that? Here's the interesting thing that rabbinical scholars have taught throughout the centuries that when Judah was there with that standard flag, that on that standard was the image of a lion. Makes sense. Uh, Judah, the, you know, a line of the tribe of Judah that we read in Scripture. They would read and they would teach that Reuben, there on the south side, that they had a standard of an ox. Ephraim, that was on the west side, had the standard of a man. And Dan on the north side had a standard of an eagle. The same four faces that are described here in Revelation chapter 4. Let's dig a little deeper. You got four Gospels. You got four Gospels. Matthew was written to prove that Jesus is the King of Kings. That's why you have a lot of, of thus fulfilled by Isaiah the prophet going back to the Old Testament because Matthew focuses on the Jewish reader. So Matthew is written to prove that Jesus is the King of Kings. What is the King of Beast? The Lion. Mark was written to the audience to show that Jesus was the perfect servant and what's the servant animal? The ox. Luke was written. Luke was Greek. He was written to show that the gospel, that Jesus was the perfect man and that standard of a man. And then John's gospel is written to everyone to show that Jesus is deity. And what's the symbol of deity? It's always been that way throughout history. The eagle. You have the lion. You have the ox. You have the man, you have the eagle. From Numbers to the Gospel to the book of Revelation, it all points to Jesus. It all speaks of Jesus. It's all fulfilled by Jesus. Isn't the Bible incredible? One harmonious message throughout the Scriptures. And when those, you know, the children of Israel were wandering through the wilderness, they didn't know that they were pointing to Jesus. That he's the king of kings. He's the perfect servant. He's the perfect man. And that he is truly the son of God. That he is deity. We know that, that these speak of Jesus. And the four living creatures, as we read, they do not rest day or night. Verse 8 again, saying, holy, holy, 
holy Lord God Almighty, who it was and is and is to come. They're constantly worshiping God. They're constantly repeating the phrase, holy, 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 ascribing to the holiness of God, then ascribing to the power of God, Lord God Almighty, ascribing to God is eternal, who was, who is, who is to come. And then verse 9, whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sit on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne saying, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they exist and were created he is worthy of our praise he's worthy of our honor and our worship he alone is worthy of glory and here we see that these four living creatures knows that they have crowns and then they they're worshiping and they cross the, the crowns before the lord listen none of us are going to be able to boast in anything when we are before the Lord. That we cannot exalt ourselves. Remember that Paul wrote in the book of Romans when it comes to justification. He said, where's the boasting then? There is no boasting. We can't boast in our salvation because he did it all, all on Calvary's cross. He paid it all. He cried out, it is finished. We cannot boast in our salvation. And that's why when I hear somebody that says, oh, you know what? Jesus' death on the cross wasn't enough, but this is what you have to do to be saved. You have to be baptized. You have to you know, belong to this church. You have to worship on this day. You have to do these religious acts. They don't understand that Jesus paid it all, and there will be no boasting in heaven. Paul says, absolutely not. We will not be able to stand before the Lord and said, you know, I know Jesus, you died on the cross for me, but that wasn't quite enough for my salvation. I did the rest. You know, I was a good person. I, I belonged to this church. I worship on this day. I was baptized. I was confirmed in the church. I gave to the church, whatever. We're not going to be able to do that. Now, when we get to back to Romans, we're going to see that as Paul begins to talk to us about practical, you know, Christianity, living for the Lord, he says, listen, make sure that you don't think too highly of yourself than you ought to, because he's given to each of us a measure of faith. He has saved us. He's given us faith. He, he has given us gifts and talents and abilities. And we ought to not think more highly of ourselves than we ought to. And the thing, we get a good deal here is what I'm saying. You know, he saves us. And then, then he empowers us to live for him. He calls us to ministry. He gifts us with his spiritual gifts. And then he rewards us. That's a pretty good deal, isn't it? But I imagine we will be, you know, the crowns that we get and the rewards that we get, we're going to cast it at the feet of Jesus and just worship him. And that's what they're doing here. You see, I think it's really a tragedy today that we see that there's celebrity pastors and those in the limelight. And, and I don't know everyone's motive. I can't judge their heart in ministering. But listen, the ministry that you have, wherever God has placed you, is just as important as my ministry. And we're to be humble before the Lord because we're all going to be worshiping Him and we're going to give praise to Him and we're going to take whatever rewards that we have because we will all stand at the Bema reward seat of Jesus Christ and be rewarded for what we've done in the body, whether good or bad. We're not talking about salvation. We're talking for what we have done for Christ. Your prayers, serving others, giving to the church, you know, giving to ministry, supporting them, whatever it is, investing in the kingdom of God. That's what it's going to last and we will be rewarded for that and sometimes people say to me well we shouldn't really desire rewards that's not what Jesus said he said we should desire those rewards we should invest in the kingdom and and so that's what's going to last and I hope that we keep that eternal perspective and that we invest in the kingdom because everything here that we get rewarded with is going to burn up and go away and it's only temporary you know, when you think about it, can you remember who won the Super Bowl six years ago? Maybe you can. I can't. I can't even remember who won it a few years ago or, you know, the championships. And we love to admire, you know, those with prestige and fame and, and all of this. But listen, when we get to heaven, 
all the stuff of this world is going to burn up and it doesn't mean anything in eternity's perspective. But what we have done for Christ. So I encourage you that you be immovable, you know, and be steadfast, always abounding in the work of the Lord is what Paul would say. Knowing that your work is not in vain, that he sees you. And at the end of the book of Revelation, we're going to see that the Lord says, I'm coming quickly and I have my reward in my hand to give to you. Serve the Lord. You know, keep that eternal perspective. Invest in the kingdom of God. Store up your treasure in heaven is what we're to do. And we see here that they cast their, you know, fall down before him who sits on the throne and they casting their throne, uh, their crowns before him. And it's absolutely amazing as we look at this. And then I like what it ends here, the chapter saying that you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they exist and were created. I like what the King James says, that the King James says that, that, they were created for your good pleasures. They were created for your good pleasures. For thou hast created all things. And for thy pleasure they were created. So you were created for his good pleasure. We talked a little bit about this on Sunday. That there's a lot of talk in our culture today about belonging and identifying and people want to identify. They want to belong to a group. And these groups are mobilizing and all of this. And trying to have a sense of belonging and fulfillment and satisfaction. Listen, you will not have fulfillment. You will not have a real surf, uh, purpose, a sense of purpose. You won't really belong unless you identify with Christ. Because you were made, you were created to worship him. Do we understand that? Our identity is in Christ. And when you realize that, that I belong to him, and I'm a new creature in Christ, and I was created for your good pleasures, Lord. You are valuable to the Lord. That's where you have a real sense of purpose and fulfillment and satisfaction. And he made us innately that in our hearts and in our souls that we are to worship him. There's that need to do that. But what can happen is we try to fill it in worshiping ourselves or worshiping something in the world or pursuing those things. But yet it leaves emptiness and confusion. And a lot of people are confused today. I talk to them. They tell me that. I'm confused. I don't really belong. And the culture comes along and confuses them even more on who they are and how to identify. We identify with Christ. And unless you do that, you will have emptiness and a deadness in your heart. You are created for His good pleasures. You are his workmanship. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 says created for good works. His poem, his poem that he desires to work through you and in you for his glory, for his purposes. And let me tell you, sometimes people say, well, why should I, you know, be created for his purposes? Because it's so glorious and so wonderful. And it is eternal. So pursue him. Look to him. And maybe you're here tonight. Listen, one more minute and we're done. Because I know we're getting tired and I've been talking long. But listen, you identify with Christ to have real purpose in life. And that's the message that we're to give to others. Because people are identifying in this group, in this way, and according to the world and what culture has to say. You identify with Christ and you'll have real purpose and real meaning and real joy and real peace and a sense of belonging because you were created for his good pleasures. You were created to worship him. So all of us, as we identify with Christ, let's worship him because we're going to spend eternity worshiping. We're going to be standing before the throne worshiping him. So let's do that now and live for him. It is such a joy to live for the Lord don't live for the world. Because when we get to chapter 6, it's going to be a mess. It really is, unfortunately. And that we're going to see that everything's going to be wrapped up as he's going to pour out his wrath on a Christ-rejected world. But you and I have the opportunity to be used for his good pleasures to be able to tell others 
that you have been saved. You know, I know the Lord. I identify with Christ. It's so wonderful. And to give that good news to others. And for you to experience that abundant life that he has for you. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you so much for tonight and this chapter. There's so much in it and a lot of information. But, Lord, the bottom line is we're going to be standing here before the throne. And, and Lord, whatever it is that we have, that we will cast it at your feet. Because you're the one that rewards us. You're the one that gifts us. You're the one that saves us. And there is no boasting, just marveling. And Father, as we read here, um, just this incredible scene, again, may it excite us because this is our future and this life is but a vapor. So Lord, I want to pray if there is anybody listening to this, to this teaching, maybe on live stream or later on the radio or you're here tonight, that you've never surrendered your heart to Jesus Christ. That the Lord says, come, because I paid it all on the cross. That's why he went to the cross, so that you might be forgiven. It's the greatest need that anyone has to be forgiven of sin, because sin has separated us from God. The wages of sin is death. But Jesus took the death on the cross, took your judgment upon himself, because he loves you. And he cried, it is finished. And then as we celebrate Sunday, he rose from the grave. He validated what he did in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So, Father, we know that he's at your right hand. These angelic creatures pointing to Jesus, speaking of Jesus, the, the stones. Oh, we're so thankful. And so, Lord, I pray if there's anyone here that you've never come to Jesus Christ. He says, come to me. Come as you are. Turn to me. Realize that you need to repent. Quit going in the direction you're going. Ask for forgiveness. Yield to me. And then you'll be born again by the Spirit of God, and he'll live inside of you and help you to live a life after him. He'll save you, forgive you, and you'll be able to come to the throne of grace because you have a relationship with the Father. Will you come? If that means anything to anyone tonight, you can pray sincerely in your heart a prayer of faith that Jesus, I come to you and I ask that you would forgive me of my sins. And I want to identify with you because I've identified with just about everything else. But Lord, I was created to identify with you. So I come and I ask that you would forgive me, Jesus, of my sins. And I come and I ask that you would be my personal Lord and Savior. And I thank you for loving me and forgiving me, dying for me. And I want to live for you now. And I thank you for this new beginning and this newness of life. I want to learn of you and enjoy you all the days of my life in Jesus' name. And listen, if you prayed that prayers, we're going to have a prayer team up front. Come up and just tell them you made a decision for the Lord. And, we want to bless you and encourage you, but for all of us, may we live for you, Lord, because eternity is real. This scene is real. We're going to be here. And at that time, all that matters is what we did for Christ is what's going to last. I know there's a lot of things that we need to do now because we live in this world. But Lord, we want to do everything as unto you in our jobs and as parents and school, whatever the case may be, to bring glory to you and to look each and every day to serve someone, to be a light to others in a vessel, an instrument for you. We have no reason to glory in ourselves. Lord, all the glory goes to you. So I thank you for tonight. Bless everyone here. Take us all home safely tonight. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. And all of God's people said, amen, amen. Would you please stand?